looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion, plus entertaining and timely pop culture topics. And today we're going to discuss looking at defensive ends, free agents that the 49ers could still target. Pro Football Focus has simulated wins projections for the 49ers. We'll talk about that where the 49ers backup quarterbacks, and yes, that is Trey Lance and Sam Darnold, ranked as backups across the league. I'll go into an analysis of the wide receivers on the roster and then dive into the Lance and Purdy divide, which is vitriolic online. I have some bad takes that I found on social media. I'm going to shoot down those bad takes one by one. In the plus section, We're going to talk about the new NBA in-season tournament that was announced for this upcoming season, what that means, if there's actually hope for the new DCU uh, universe of movies, have some morons that I want to share about, one getting what they called vampire facials and HIV, TikTok challenge of jumping off boats at high speeds and breaking their necks, and again, Always anti-vaxxers and influenza. And lastly, we'll end on a serious note, the Supreme Court siding with a graphic designer who would not create a website for a gay couple getting married. But like always, it starts with the 49ers, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! So before we jump in, just wanted to share that this episode is being recorded in South Jersey, uh, down at the beach, the shore for you Jerseyites. Uh, But I realized that the days that we're going to be away is going to overlap with when I like to release the podcast. So the kids and my wife are at the beach for a little bit, giving me time to record the podcast. But one thing I wanted to say about South Jersey, actually two things. One, I've seen far too many people wearing Philadelphia Eagles paraphernalia, and it's taking all of the self-control I have not to either clothesline, dropkick, or powerbomb every single one of them, and then laugh at them losing the Super Bowl because they're complaining that the at the turf was too slick. And two, South Jerseyans, South Jerseyites, I'm not sure what the correct nomenclature is, have a distinct look. I, be, I truly believe that if there were 25 people in a lineup and only two or three were from South Jersey, I would be able to pick them out with frightening accuracy. And tangentially, I really don't think a Walmart in South Jersey would look all that different based on clientele than a Walmart in Backwoods, Alabama, or Mississippi. Born and raised in New Jersey, went to college in Pennsylvania for four years. New Jersey is, in a way, all I know, so so all love, no hate. But man, South Jersey is an animal unto itself. Now let's transition to actual football talk. And 
I know in a few a few podcasts ago I mentioned that I was pretty okay or feeling pretty good about the 49ers defensive end situation, and I still am. But I read an interesting article where a potential target or a signing rumor for the 49ers is former Jacksonville Jaguars defensive end Dwayne Smoot. He stands at 6'3", 250. Not a pure speed rusher, but not necessarily someone who may be holding down the edge on rundowns would be purely a rotational pass rusher. And as I mentioned on previous podcasts, the 49ers have 89 of 90 players signed for camp. So they have an opening where I believe either DN, tight end, or safety are positions that could be light and the 49ers could look to bring in that last 90th player for training camp. If the 49ers bring in another player, let's say it is a DN, it would need to be someone making $3 million or less for a one-year deal. Now, Dwayne Smoot did sign a two-year, I think it was $10 million contract with the Jaguars, so he was averaging $5 million a year. I think he had a $6 million cap hit last year. He's not going to get that, and and some of the players that I'm going to mention after him aren't going to get that either, but this is a player that had at least five sacks in each of the last four seasons. That's essentially matching the production of Charles Amenahu and uh, Samson Ebucom, who left in free agency. And I know their fans are wondering, how are we going to fill that production? It really wasn't great production. I don't think it's going to be hard to fill that on the stat sheet. And this is a player that has duplicated that in four straight seasons. I did mention the salary, even though they the 49ers will extend Nick Bosa in July, end of July, or beginning of August. They have $10 million in cap space currently, and they don't want to get down to, you know, a 2 or $3 million left amount because they do need to make in-season roster moves. But I think a player that could come in for less than $3 million, like Cleveland Farrell came in and around that, like Kerry Hyder, like Austin Bryant, would be a good move for both parties. One, for the 49ers, another pass rusher, a cost-controlled pass rusher, at least for one year. And for the defensive end that may come in, playing on a pretty stacked defensive line could get them a contract similar to what Samson Ebucom and Charles who got in free agency a few months ago. Let me start with the doubtfuls, the names that have been thrown around quite a bit on 49ers social media by content creators that I highly doubt are coming here. Yannick Ngakwe, formerly of the Indianapolis Colts, Robert Quinn, last season with the Eagles, and Jadavian Clowney with the Browns. I think they're going to be out of the 49ers price range. I think Ngakwe is going to want a multi-year deal with the 49ers are not going to give, and I think Quinn and Clowney, Clowney could come above what the 49ers are looking to pay. The maybes, Carlos Dunlap, was with the Chiefs last year, played $3 million, had four sacks, won a Super Bowl ring. Justin Houston of the Ravens played for $3.5 million, had nine and a half sacks. Now, he is 34 years old, so he's not going to get anything other than a one-year deal, and he's probably holding out for after training camp so he doesn't have to put his mid-30-year-old body, just like Carlos Dunlap and the next person I'm going to mention also, through the rigors of training camp, And lastly, Akeem Hicks, 33 years old of the Buccaneers, finished up a contract with him where where he was making $7.3 million last year, only generated one sack. He will not be getting close to that. Um, Those are the maybes. Now, the realistic targets, I think Dwayne Smoot of the Jaguars mentioned, you know, five sacks in each of the last four seasons. 
Trey Flowers last year of Miami, little over $2 million, did not have a sack, but only played, he missed a good deal of time due to injury, so it would fit in with the Niners just based on that alone. And Steven Weatherly uh, of the Browns had two and a half sacks, made $1.2 million. Those, I think, are the type of signings and even some of the maybes that San Francisco could make given the cap space, given who they have on the roster already. Because again, this is probably going to be best case scenario, a fourth defensive end on the team. So you're not going to want to spend more than really two and a half ish million dollars on a player that's going to be fourth in the rotation. He'll still get snaps, but not nearly as many as obviously your, your top two or even what Cleveland Farrell may get. So I've had that my eye on that 89 number. There's one spot open for training camp. I think DN could be worth it. Tight ends. Last week, uh, we gave uh, an, an analysis of the six tight ends on the roster. That feels light. They could add maybe a seventh and same with safety. Six safeties on the roster. Feels light for training camp and preseason games. Um, they could add a seventh there as well. Now, transitioning from defensive ends to win projections. So Pro Football Focus ran a bunch of simulations for the entire NFL. And we're just going to focus on the 49ers and some other teams as well. Now, remember, sports books have San Francisco's win-loss at 10.5. And, and I think if the majority of the important players stay healthy, they'll be over that, whether if it's 11 wins, 12 wins, 13, whatever it may be. And we saw last year that injuries getting down to a third quarterback didn't derail that. They went 13 and four, but now the 49ers do have a first place schedule. They do have some tough games, both home and away. We're going to go into that, but let's talk about the pro football focus simulation. 10.31 wins, which is right around, but a shade under a 10 and a half win over under. Now this 10.31 is the fourth highest win simulation projection in the NFL. They are only behind the Eagles in the NFC. And who's ahead of them, AFC-wise, Cincinnati at 11.36 wins, Kansas City at 11.17, and the Eagles at 10.37. I think that's low for Philadelphia as well. Next in the NFC, behind San Francisco, New Orleans at 9.36, and Dallas at 9.24. I think that's low for the Cowboys. I can't see out. Dallas is not at least a 10 or 11 win team with that amount of talent. And the Saints are a team that I like as well. I, I, they should win the South. I like Derek Carr more than a lot of people do. They have weapons on offense with Chris Olave and Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas, if he can stay healthy, and a good young tight end and a good defense and a weak division. Um, I'm not going to really be putting any money on any teams in terms of, of these what these simulations are. I'm going to look at what the over-unders are, but those are teams that I think, and I think we should flip Dallas and New Orleans. I could see Dallas being in the high nines, low tens in terms of simulation, and then New Orleans at where they're at, low nines, maybe high eights. But as far as a 10.5 win over-under for San Francisco or a 10.31 simulation by Pro Football Focus, I think that's on the low end of the spectrum. And I looked at the 49ers roster and separated the games that I think are I'm pretty sure they're going to win some maybes and games. I'm pretty sure they, I think they're going to lose. So the games I'm pretty confident they're going to win at home against the giants at home against the Cardinals at the Rams at home against the Buccaneers at home against the Seahawks at the Cardinals 
at the Commanders, and at home against the Rams. So that's eight games. Now the maybes at Pittsburgh to open the season, at home for the Cowboys, at Cleveland, at Minnesota, at home for Cincinnati, at the Jaguars, at home for Baltimore. Maybes. Now, that's seven games. Could I see them winning five of those games? Yeah. Could they win six? Could they maybe win seven? I don't think they're going to win, you know, all seven or maybe even six. Those are some tough teams. Pittsburgh to open the season, tough. Dallas, a playoff team, played them tough last year. Cleveland year two with Watson, and they have a good defense, and they can run the ball. Minnesota, yes, they lost Alvin Cook, but they still have an explosive offense, and their defense is going to be better this year. Cincinnati, Final Four team at at Jacksonville. That's a team on the come. And at home for the Ravens. Now, the no's are just two, at Philadelphia and at Seattle. I'll give them more of a chance at Seattle. Now, that's a night game on Thanksgiving night, primetime. That stadium is going to be rocking tough game. And at Philadelphia, yes, we did not see a full-strength 49er team in the NFC Championship game, but I think it's fair to say that top to bottom, the Eagles have a better roster than the 49ers. It might not, might not be by that much, but I think they do. And it's at Philadelphia with a lot of low lifes in the stands. So all told, I think the range is 10 and 7 on the low end, 13 and 4 on the high end. So if you want to make some money, maybe at a sports book going over the 10 and a half or looking at the 10.3 win simulation. Now, look, no team was over 11.36 wins. That was Cincinnati at the highest. So when you're going 11.3, 11.1, 10.3, 10.3, those are your top four teams in the league. No one is over 11 wins. So these simulations, I wouldn't say that they were cautious in any way, but I guess when you're running this simulation, I don't know how many times they ran it, but they averaged out to the mid, low to mid 10s, low to mid 11s for your final four from a year ago. Is, could there, is there going to be a, like a 14-win team, a 13-win team, maybe a 15-win team? Sure. There's always that team, that good team that just gets really hot or plays above expectations. But in terms of these simulations or even the over-unders aren't really through the roof. I mean, if San Francisco's a top two or three team in the NFC and the over-under is 10 wins, I would say that's a bit conservative. But I understand it also. So let's go move from projections to ranking backup quarterbacks in the NFL. San Francisco, number one backup quarterback situation with Trey Lance and Sam Darnold battling it out behind presumptive starter Brock Purdy. Let me give you the top 10 from 10 to 2, since you know what number one is. Jarrett Stidham of Denver, Mitchell Trubisky of Pittsburgh, Jameis Winston of the Saints, Gardner Minshew of the Colts, that's assuming Anthony Richardson starts, Marcus Mariota of the Eagles, Taylor Heineke of the Falcons, Jacoby Brissett of the Commanders, Tyler Huntley of the Ravens, and Andy Dalton backing up number one pick Bryce Young in Carolina. And here is the quote uh, from Pro Football Focus. Both these vets are technically about Darnold and Lance. Both these vets are technically in the mix for the day one starting job alongside Brock Purdy, 2022 star rookie. Purdy is the perceived front runner if and when he's recovered from elbow surgery. 
however, leaving either Lance or Darnold to man the backup gig. The former, Lance, is more of an unknown, making just four starts in two years due to injury, but his floor is relatively high considering his natural athleticism and rushing ability. Darnold, meanwhile, has been spotty in 55 career starts, albeit for rebuilding organizations and figures to showcase his own arm in a more QB-friendly system. There probably isn't a QB room with more simultaneous question marks and collective upside than this one, and yet we trust whomever mans the number two job to make noise in some way, taking a dig at the fact that the 49ers quarterback position cannot stay healthy. Right off the top 10, no major problems with the list. And when you looked at 11 through 32, you saw some major problems with some backup quarterback situations. This, again, is a reason why I'm comfortable having these three quarterbacks on the roster. I'm comfortable keeping Lance. They're not going to trade him. There was some article that I read that the Packers may be interested in Sam Darnold, and I think the Packers had the worst backup quarterback situation in the league. It's the rookie quarterback from Penn State. Can't recall his name. I apologize. But the fact that there is a QB3 rule, an emergency quarterback 3 rule, and it doesn't matter if it's Lance or Darnold, I'm fine with it. Let's not derail the season when the window is really wide open this year and next year before the salary cap could really become an issue. Leave all three quarterbacks on the roster. Let them battle it out for the backup. And whoever is number three is still going to be dressed on game days. Let's not make this mistake. It's not going to be an inactive. If Darnold is the number three or Lance, he will be dressed and he will come in if the unthinkable happens again like it did in the NFC Championship game. And is it really that unthinkable? I'll keep going back to this nowadays when there is so much caution with injuries, so much caution with head injuries with quarterbacks. Remember, Josh Johnson did not make it back in the NFC Championship game because of the concussion protocol. QBs are one hit away from obviously a career-ending or a season-ending injury, but they're I keep saying it, they're also one okay hit away from their head snapping, hitting the grass or the turf, being evaluated for concussion and not coming back in. I'm okay with erring on the side of caution, keeping these three on the roster. Now, let's jump into the wide receiver analysis as I break down one position per week. The 49ers currently have 11 wide receivers on their, I guess, 89-man training camp roster, and this is a position where they will keep five or six The two locks, and there are only two locks on this team, is Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk. Ayuk went over 1,000 yards last year. Debo looking to bounce back big time from a disappointing year last year, really in comparison to what he did in 2021, is the year that he got a big contract extension in the offseason. Here's who's behind them. So Jawan Jennings has been the big slot receiver the past couple years. Let's also break down the money that they are owed or not owed. He is actually, I thought he was owed, had some guaranteed money. He is not. There is no cap hit for releasing Juwan Jennings. They would save $940,000. Ray Ray McLeod is in year two of his contract. Versatile returner. Obviously can play receiver. Has speed. If cut, though, the Niners would owe him, or it would be an $875,000 cap hit, $1.2 million freed up. Danny Gray, 
last year's third-round pick who did not see the field much. Hopefully, he can take a step forward this year. If released, $212,000 cap hit, the 49ers would save $934,000. Ronnie Bell, this year's seventh-round rookie receiver out of Michigan. If released, $19,000 cap hit, they would save $750,000. In free agency, the 49ers did sign Chris Conley. The only way they would have gotten him was to guarantee him some money. It would be a $400,000 cap hit. They would save $692,000. Willie Sneed back again was on the active roster for a couple games last year. Mainly the practice squad. If released, a $275,000 cap hit, $690,000 in savings. Tay Martin, second year on the practice squad all of last year. No cap hit, $750,000 in savings. Daz Newsom on the practice squad the last month of last year. No cap hit, $870,000 in savings. And Isaiah Winstead, get this, so he's the rookie undrafted free agent out of Eastern Carolina, would have a $333 cap hit. The Niners would save $750,000. Guaranteed $333, three digits. I guess my man needed like a Nintendo Switch or something for that $333. I've never seen guaranteed money under four digits before but there you go so now let's talk about the position as a whole i think there's talent with whoever the top five top six are i like joan jennings interesting again that he's not guaranteed any money if he is beaten out for a spot plays the big slot position well converts a high number of receptions into either first downs or touchdowns, but not a receiver that's going to win on the outside. Ray Ray McLeod, you know, versatility here. Even though they would save $1.2 million, they would have to look at who would be your returner. Would they feel comfortable with Danny Gray in that position? Would they feel comfortable in Ronnie Bell? He did some returning at Michigan, both punt and kick returning, but he does have that versatility he does have a $1.2 million savings if they release him, but again, they're $10 million under the cap. They're not in a position where they're looking that they absolutely need to free up money, especially with that BOSA extension looming, which will free up money as well. Danny Gray, I think only one or two receptions, if that, this past year, expecting him to step up. Was not asked to do a lot in college at SMU, will be asked, obviously is being asked to do more with the 49ers, and Kyle Shanahan has that motto, no block, no rock, and I'm sure that's something that he's been working on in the offseason. Ronnie Bell had a nice rookie minicamp, didn't shine as much in the mandatory minicamp, but as a seventh-round pick, you know, if the 49ers only keep five receivers, say it is Debo, Ayuk, Jennings, McLeod, and one of Gray or Bell, One, would they consider trading, say, a Danny Gray to keep Ronnie Bell? You know, that's a possibility. I don't know what his trade value would be at all. But then it becomes, if released, who has a better chance to make it to the practice squad? Is it Gray or Ronnie Bell? And a lot of that will be determined in training camp and the film that they put out there in preseason games. After those six... Chris Connolly, you know, I think he's 29, 30, or 31 years old, a veteran in the league, still can run, not guaranteed a ton of money, 400000 against the cap. 
Now, he's a player if released, could find his way onto a roster, did not make, obviously he only signed with San Francisco, practice squad candidate. Willie Sneed, same sort of thing, familiarity with the system, savvy veteran, good route runner, not a burner, but sure-handed receiver, could, I think, play kick returner if needed. Tay Martin, Daz Newsom, Isaiah Winstead, best case scenario is going to be on the practice squad. I liked Daz Newsom coming out of North Carolina a few years ago, just did not stick with the Bears for some reason. Tay Martin out of Oklahoma State, bigger receiver, um, has not differentiated himself in uh, training camp last year or the practice squad. I'm not, this isn't a stacked 49er receiving room, but it's going to be an interesting challenge for Shanahan because while they can take up to six, they generally have not started a training camp or, uh, excuse me, a season, a 53-man acted roster with more than five receivers in the recent past. And th- this is a team that runs the, b- that, you know, you got tight ends and Kittle that can catch the ball. You have running backs and McCaffrey that can catch the ball. It's not that receiver is undervalued. It's that generally, if you're the fifth receiver, you're probably going to be inactive, which means if they carry six receivers, the fifth and sixth receivers are going to be inactive on game days. More than likely. Definitely the six, if they carry six. So interesting to keep our eye on. Interesting to see who separates in training camp and preseason and what mix of veterans and young players end up on the practice squad. They should have at least two receivers, if not three, when it comes to the 16-man practice squad. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, I will be giving my 53-man predictions end of July, beginning of August, um, as training camp is underway, before the first preseason game, for sure, which I think is, it might be August 7th, 8th, 10th, somewhere somewhere around there. So now, last but not least, what I have unfortunately seen on social media, and you're going to see it on social media because it is a cesspool of vitriolic people complaining about stuff, is the divide on Trey Lance and Brock Purdy. And I'm going to say this up front, and I may say this in the middle and at the end of this segment of the podcast. I am pro whoever the quarterback is. I am pro whoever Kyle Shanahan anoints as the starting quarterback. I've been that way the past couple of years. I am that way this year. And it looks like if Brock Purdy is healthy, he will be QB1. And I am totally, I'm beyond okay with that. That is the right decision. Social media, social media God, shows this divide among fans and 49er top Twitter is absolutely toxic. It's not that there's differing opinions. It's people going at one another about their opinions, how mean and rude they are um, at each other. And there is a little bit of a racial component to the divide, meaning From what I've seen, have I scraped Twitter completely clean and looked at every 49er fan's account? No. But what I've seen seems like black and brown people, people of color, are more in the Lance camp and Caucasian people are more in the Purdy camp. That's not to say that there are not Caucasians that want Lance to start. There certainly are. 
and I've seen them. And there are certainly people of color that are all about Brock Purdy because I see it on social media. But if I had to say what leans a little bit more towards one way, the people of color more are leaning towards Lance and Caucasians are leaning towards Brock Purdy for whatever that's worth. And again, it's Twitter, so it's not necessarily totally representative of the world, but it's representative of what I'm seeing on social media and on Twitter. Now, here's my timeline. I was really excited about the Jimmy trade in 2017 and what he did those last five games to get, at the time, the largest uh, contract in NFL history. We went through the injuries. We got to the Super Bowl. A lot of people blamed Jimmy for the loss. I was not one of them. It was a collective effort, right? Everybody lost. Shanahan, um, Garoppolo, the defense, and, and there's something called the Chiefs winning it. Sometimes another team just performs better down the stretch. More injuries, draft day 2021. I was pro Trey Lance or Justin Fields during the draft. I in no way, shape, or form wanted Mac Jones. I would have been okay, I guess, with Zach Wilson if he had, you know, the Jets decided to take someone at number two and the Niners maybe took him at number three, but that might not have been the case regardless. But I was mainly for, for Trey, would have been pretty happy with Fields, did not want Mac Jones. Now, going into the 21 season, I was pro-Jimmy, over Trey Lance. And the reasoning is easy and logical because Trey Lance, no matter what you heard about what he was doing in training camp, slicing and dicing the defense, blah, blah, blah. You're only going to hear good stuff, guys, when things are being discussed with the media. You've noticed that the Niners don't leak and they don't badmouth their players. Trey Lance played one year of football at North Dakota State University, a Division II school for all intensive purposes. He was not ready. They made this trade up specifically because Lance had a year left on, I'm sorry, Jimmy had a year left on his contract and because the Niners were close enough to trade up because they did not have a great 2020 season. But that was always the plan, guys. Shanahan and Lynch agreed, Trey ain't ready. We're going to have a package for Trey. And he get, he did. He came in sometimes. He had to start when Jimmy got hurt at Arizona, lost that game, and he had to start against the Texans at home and won that game to keep the 49ers' playoff hopes alive. Did not look great in those games. Looked kind of bad in the Cardinal game. Looked better in the Texans game. So he grew throughout the season. And I was all for Trey starting in 2022 with the caveat that Jimmy comes back as the backup because we've seen the story of 49er quarterbacks getting hurt far too many times to not have who I believe was the best backup quarterback in the league going into the year last year. I know people don't like Jimmy. That's great. You could have your own opinion. Just know sometimes your opinion is wrong. Jimmy G was the best backup quarterback in the NFL last season. And what happens? Trey gets hurt game two. Jimmy gets hurt week 13. And Brock Purdy is in. Now, I am, like I said, I am pro best quarterback for 2023. And it looks like it's going to be a healthy Brock. Shanahan and Lynch agree. They see everybody, and obviously 
Purdy's not doing really any serious throwing yet. Maybe in the next couple weeks he will be. But they see everybody more than us, guys. They see, and Shanahan's liked Sam Darnold a whole lot. Signing Darnold isn't an indictment on Trey. It means nothing about Brock. He wants to have the best possible quarterback room, and they might have it this year slightly better than last year because last year we had no idea what Brock Purdy was. We didn't know what Trey Lance was, but everybody was talking about the potential. He sat for a year. Now he's ready, and we know what Jimmy is. He's a winning quarterback in this league. Here's what I know for certain with all of that. And I'm going to say it again, and you guys should know this by now, listening to this podcast. Lance wasn't ready year one, and Shanahan could have played him at any point, any point just to get him the experience, and he didn't. The closest he came was admitting that if the 49ers had lost against the Rams at home in San Francisco on Monday night, then he probably would have put Lance in and then consider consider the 2021 season lost and give Lance experience. And if Lance goes on a tear and gets experience at the same time, that's the best of both worlds. Jimmy and the Niners won that game, went on a roll all the way to the NFC Championship game. Now, I may do a segment every week up until the season starts called, actually maybe even through the season, called Bad 49er Takes, courtesy of Morons on Twitter. And this is the post, this is the take that made me want to dive into this divide a little bit more. And here is the post. I've never in my life seen a player so hated by an organization like Trey Lance. Really? Hated? Back to the post. The media takes shots pretty much every day. They do? I read a whole lot of Niner stuff every day. I don't really see any shots. Half the fan base labeled him as a bust. He's not a bust. And if you label him as a bust, you're a stupid fan. You're a moron. Because you can't call him a bust if he hasn't had the opportunity to play. He hasn't played like a bust. Jamarcus Russell was a bust. Ryan Leaf was a bust. Trey Lance has played in, and almost he's played in four games, essentially three games and two drives. He's not a bust. Back to the post. Doesn't get any support from Kyle or Lynch. Oh, really? Is that why he was anointed the starter in 2022 with no competition whatsoever? And Jimmy was brought back. I don't know the thinking if Lance or Shanahan did not have any faith in Lance. I have no idea. But he was anointed the starter. Trey Lance was in 2022. And he got hurt, and it's unfortunate. All that after four games is truly amazing. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's logical because he didn't, even in four games, three games and two drives, sorry, he didn't show anything. Did you see anything like, wow, that's why they drafted him? I watched, I've watched every 49er game for the past 25 years, guys. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I live in the Northeast, and this is before Sunday Ticket, so I can't, I'm not. I haven't watched as many people as live in the Bay Area, any any 49er games, as many as people live in the Bay Area, but I will put my knowledge up against any and all of them, media members included. Now, that's bad take number one. Bad take number two, this makes Lance's selection even more baffling if they weren't willing to go through the growing pains. Let's slow back here. 
fans would have revolted and called for Shanahan's head if Lance was in there and he was lo- like winning a game, losing two, winning a game, losing a game, because they would have felt like, oh, it's easy in retrospect to say you could throw away the season. While the season's happening, if the season is going downhill and Trey Lance is the one at the helm, melt down by the fan base. 40 whiners like crazy. Don't bring up growing pains because you would not have been able to take the pain, fans. You would not have been able to. Back to the quote, eight games of admittedly excellent play from a seventh-round rookie quarterback shouldn't be enough to give up on a quarterback you use significant capital to acquire. Yes, it is. When the NFL, specifically the 49ers, are a meritocracy, you get what you earn. Brock Purdy, it's not like this guy went four and four and they snuck into the playoffs and just stumbled into the NFC Championship game. He was undefeated in every friggin' game he played the majority of the snaps of, or finished. 8-0. 16 touchdowns, 3 interceptions from week 13 to the divisional round. That is enough right now to say, we're going with Brock over Trey Lance. I don't care about potential. I don't care about what he could be because Lance could also be crap. Doesn't matter that he's a seventh round rookie and you want to complain about the assets given up to trade Lance, then just combine that into, you know, they traded up. So they traded a first round pick up two additional first round picks, a third round pick and a seventh to find Brock Purdy. Look at it that way. Or you got all that for two starting caliber quarterbacks. Plus Sam Darnold as a free agent. And this was one of the things, there's four things I hear a lot about from people that are pro, pro Trey. And again, I am not pro Trey or pro Brock. I am pro common sense and I am pro best quarterback. I hear San Francisco gave up a lot for Lance. They can't sit him. They didn't. They played him. They anointed him the unchallenged starter in 2022. Then he got hurt. Life is unfair. Life sucks. He got hurt and someone stepped in and played like dynamite. They gave up a lot for Lance. Like I said, if you want to look at it from an amortization aspect, they gave up a lot for Lance. They, a seventh round pick for Purdy. You combine that and average that, you got two viable starters in the NFL. I'll take it. I, he- I also hear a lot about Lance's potential and higher ceiling. That's fantastic, guys, but I am not sacrificing a potential Super Bowl run on Lance's potential. We still don't know what he is. But I also hear people say, well, Shanahan's system makes any quarterback look good, so Lance will be fine. Um, Brian Hoyer, CJ Beathard, Nick Mullins. And we're not sure about Trey Lance yet. Do I think he could be a pretty good quarterback? I do. I would bet that in, in San Francisco, he has a much better chance of being a good quarterback than a flop. But that's a roll of the dice, which could still come up snake eyes versus 
going with the, there's no such thing in life as a sure thing other than death. The more sure thing, the one who has proven it, Brock Purdy. Now, what else do I also hear? I hear that Brock can't beat a top flight quarterback. He can't outgun him when it matters. It's not, we can't win a Super Bowl with Brock. Hey, morons. Do you remember that last year when Brock took over, starting in week 13 against the Dolphins, the 49ers scored more points than any other team in the league? And it might not be his job to outgun a Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. If, if Brock stayed healthy, I don't think in the NFC Championship, I don't think he was going to need to outgun Jalen Hurts to win the game. I think it would have been an ugliest type game because the Eagles weren't impressive. 14 to 7 before the Josh Johnson fumble, the Eagles were not impressive. The Niners' defense was holding them down. The Niners then just gave the game away with turnovers and stupid plays and, you know, obviously not going for it or not challenging the Devonta Smith catch down the sideline that gave the Eagles their first touchdown. Do I think the Niners would have won? No. With a healthy Brock, I've said that before. No. 24 20 Eagles was my prediction, and I'll stand by that. I understand the catch 22 of the situation. Lance can't get better without repetitions. I get it. Lance got reps in OTAs, in mandatory minicamp. He's going to get more reps in training camp as well until Brock is fully cleared. And training camp will start before Brock is fully cleared. But there's still a possibility he doesn't beat out Sam Darnold. And that's, again, that's not an indictment on, on Lance. Darnold is a talented thrower. He's been in the league. He started 55-odd games. Lance has played in four. He's more seasoned. And again, I this, this fairness aspect, this, well, they gave up so much to get him. Again, life sucks, guys. That, in, that ankle injury was so unfortunate and unfair. And for him, it was unfair in a way that Brock came in and played so well. But for anybody that says he would have done just as well as Purdy, it's pure speculation. You don't know that. Could have done the same. Could have went to the NFC Championship game and got hurt. Could have done worse. Could have gotten hurt later in the season. Could have won the Super Bowl. Who knows? Here's what we know again. Let's go back to it. Purdy has proven it over eight consecutive games. He's earned it. What has Lance earned? He didn't even earn it in 2022. He was gifted it. And that's fine, because at some point, the organization wanted to move on from Jimmy. That was the plan. That's fine. Now, one last thing that I was thinking about for some fans, and this is not Caucasian, white, black, brown, yellow, purple, blue, whatever. doesn't matter the color of your skin. And those two bad takes that I shared with you, one was from a Caucasian, one was from a person of color. I'm not going to tell you which, but just wanted to share that. Is there some Rudy, remember that Notre Dame movie starring Sean Astin, the ultimate underdog who finally got into a game for the Fighting Irish last game of the year? Is there, is there some Rudy rooting interest for the seventh round Mr. Irrelevant pick among the fan base? Absolutely there is. How could there not be? Is that maybe fueled not the fact that he's white, but the fact that he's undersized, Mr. Irrelevant, doesn't have a great arm, but still finds the way to win, a way to win, has moxie, has confidence, is doing it with a less talented toolbox 
than Trey Lance? It's kind of impressive to me. But let me ask you this. If their situations were reversed, and let's say Purdy was drafted in that draft with the number three pick, and Trey Lance was the seventh round pick that played the way he did this past year, who are you looking, who do you think should be the starter? I'd be voting for Lance. I'm on record on podcasts probably multiple times saying if Purdy is out for the first month or six weeks because he has a hiccup with the elbow recovery and he's put on the pup list and Lance starts and he comes out hot, like five and one, six and oh, four and two. Do you go back? Maybe not four and two, five and one or six and oh, do you go back to Brock? I don't. And I don't think Shanahan would as well. The Purdy story unfortunately for Lance, was a captivating story. Captured a lot of people's imagination in sports, in the NFL, fans. They always kept bringing up Mr. Relvin. The poor guy couldn't shake that. And all he did was perform. But let me bring it back, let me bring it back to real life for you guys. If you were to hire someone to work on your house, are you going to go with the less experienced, more expensive contractor or the more experienced, less expensive one? Now, remember, the less experienced one has all the tools, right? Trey Lance has all the tools. This contractor has the saw, the hammer, nails, a ladder, spackle, you name it. Just like Lance has all the tools. Big gun, mobile. People say accurate, eh. But he's got all the tools. Who are you going to hire to work on your house? And he's more expensive. Lance is more expensive contract-wise than Purdy, which is going to be a determining factor or one of the factors this year to see who the 49ers are going to keep. Purdy making a million or Lance making 10 million next year, which is why I think if the season plays out where Purdy is healthy and he plays well, Lance is going to be traded next offseason. I don't think it happens now unless he, be, he falls down to third on the depth chart and he or his agent demand a trade. Now, maybe the contractor comparison wasn't exactly apples to apples, but experience matters, performance matters, and cost matters when it comes to contracts. Right now, based on what we know, not what you're projecting, not what you're speculating on, not what the promise or the potential is, those three things matter. Those three things right now are in Brock Purdy's favor. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stay right here. We're going to be talking NBA in-season tournament, some potential hope for the next slate of DC movies that are coming out. Three examples of why people are complete morons. And we're going to conclude with the Supreme Court ruling in favor of someone who would not create a website for a gay couple getting married. Stay right here. It's plus time. Okay, we are back. And the NBA last week announced plans for its in-season tournament, which will start and kick off Friday, November 3rd, with a champion being crowned December 9th in Las Vegas. Let's get this out of the way. A lot of us are going to mock it, but we're also going to watch it. Now, here's how this is going to work. There will be group play. Think of, you know, like the World Cup. Teams in the NBA are going to be uh, grouped into three groups of five teams 
per conference, Eastern Western Conference. Each team will get four games in group play, two home, two away. Now, this is going to happen as the season is going on. Just to clarify any confusion for anybody, these games, these in in season tournament games are going to be woven into regular season games. They're going to count as regular season games, but it's not like they are stopping the regular season to play this in season tournament. Now, once the group play games are done, we move on to the knockout rounds in which eight teams will advance. They will be the three group winners and one wild card from each conference. So four teams from the East, four teams from the West, they will play in a single elimination tournament on December's 4th and on December 4th and 5th. The semifinals will be December 7th and the finals will be December 9th in Las Vegas. This is something this is a really off the wall out of the box situation that the NBA is introducing to fans. And I give them credit for trying to adapt to do something new to bring more fans in. The whole reason this is being done, or the reasons, is one, the season is way too long. Granted, 82 games, not 162 like Major League Baseball. It's a long season, and recent playoffs have shown that the regular season doesn't matter. You have the Miami Heat as a play-in team, number eight seed gets to the finals. The Los Angeles Lakers, a number seven seed, a play-in team, makes it to the Western Conference Finals. Some of that has to do with the players and the talent on the team. Some of it has to do with luck in, in some ways. But if you ask the majority of NBA players, I think they would say that, you know, with load management, how much big-time players don't play during the regular season, it's because they're saving themselves for the playoffs. This isn't like the NFL where the number one seed is so important. And even home court advantage in the NBA, I don't see that being as a huge benefit, excuse me, either. But ratings have suffered and are suffering. For this past season, the 2022-2023 season, the average rating, now this is like cumulative, there's a ton of games that are going on, but across ABC, ESPN, and TNT, the average rating was 1.59 million viewers. And that is down from last year's average of 1.61 million viewers. Not down a lot, but anytime anything's down, people are going to want to correct it, whether it's ratings, whether it's revenue, usually those two go hand in hand. Whatever it may be. You don't want to go up in a capitalistic society. You want down. You want to go up, 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 up. Now, let's talk about how ratings have gone down significantly over time. If people want... I, to me, I'll consider the, the 90s the heyday of the NBA. You had Jordan. I was a Knicks fan. Or I am a Knicks fan. The Knicks were good. You know, you're coming off of the Lakers being, you know just their dynasty kind of ending. Um, you had some decent teams in the West, the Suns, the Rockets, the Jazz, the Cavaliers were good in the East, the Pistons. Ratings from the early slash mid to late 90s. Now, again, this was, obviously Jordan was the star power here. 
2.73 million viewers per game on average versus 1.59 million this past season. Now, again, that's an average of the six seasons from the early to mid, early slash mid to late 90s. But let's keep on going. Something a little bit more recent anyway, say the last 15 years. From 2007 to 2014, that represents seven seasons. Average rating, 2.09 million. Okay, not bad. From 2014 to 2019, that's five seasons, 1.83 million decline. From 2019 to 2023, that's four seasons, and COVID is in there as well, 1.53 million. So from 2.09, 1.83, 1.53, when uh, 2021, 2022 was 1.61, last year was 1.59 million. The NBA still is the second most popular sport in North America or in the United States behind football. It's super, super duper far behind football. Still better than baseball, better than hockey. We'll see what NASCAR is, is doing in the ratings. But the NBA is popular. It's just not as popular as it was. And this tournament is a way to spice things up. I understand why they're doing it. The tournament itself is not intrusive. Until you get to the semifinals and finals and you have to play neutral site in Las Vegas. And like I said, we're going to mock it, but we're going to watch it. And it'll probably be interesting, especially when you get to like the semifinals and final. We'll see how into winning this in-season tournament. I don't know if there's going to be a trophy or whatever teams are going to be. It's obviously not the same as a finals championship. It's something. It's something woven into the regular season and something that I'll be, I'm not going to be going out of my way to watch a group game in November. But if someone, you know, if I'm flipping through and someone mentions, or there's something on the, on the screen that it's a group game as part of this tournament, maybe I'll watch a little bit longer than if it was just a regular in season game, regular season game. I don't know. Now let's transition to movies where maybe there is hope yet for the new slate, the new universe of DC movies <clears throat> with James Gunn hitting the reboot with Superman Legacy coming out in 2025. Now, this is a long way away, and I know I've been ragging on DC movies and the DCU for a couple podcasts now, but I noticed that Superwoman, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, the graphic novel compilation written by Tom King, was nominated for a Hugo Award, which is the most prestigious sci-fi award, and it was nominated for Best Graphic Story or Comic this year. Also nominated, Cyberpunk 2077, Monstrous Volume 7, Once and Future Volume 4, Saga Volume 10, and Dune, the official movie graphic novel. Just a quick thing here. Saga, it's an image comic book written by Brian K. Vaughn, and illustrated by Fiona Staples, fantastic. And volume 10 is essentially, it might be like a five or six issue arc of that run of which they're up to, I think, close to 60 issues. I can see that being nominated. Dune, the official movie graphic novel, I don't know why that's nominated. No adaptions should be nominated for a Hugo. You're basically, you are adapting a movie that's based on a novel. Come on. Obviously, the source material is going to be great because Dune was a great classic award-winning book and series. But 
I want to go back and, and I mentioned this in previous podcasts. I think Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow was a really good book, graphic novel, a really good read. The story, you know, if they're going to keep it true, then it has to revolve around Supergirl going on a major drinking bender, saving a girl from getting murdered, and then traveling the cosmos to try to capture and kill the person that killed this, you know, young girl's father. There's some really good to it, but it's going to have to, ch- it's going to have to adapt for the screen. But I think they have a lot of good stuff to work with. Now, Superman Legacy is coming out in 2025. There's a Swamp Thing movie. There's an Authority movie. There's, I don't know where Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow is going to fall on the docket. It should actually come out sooner rather than later. I mean, you have to leave with Superman. There's a Brave and the Bold movie with Batman and Robin. If they can stay as true to the source material, you will obviously have a good sci-fi Hugo Award nominated at the very least story to base one of your pillar stories on and break away from the absolute shit show that has been DC movies recently. Now, going back to like that Dune, the official movie graphic novel, I've always been curious. I don't know about if you guys have been also like, why are there book adaptions of movies that, you know, people are not going to read the books. I've seen book adaptions of aliens, movies, predator movies. Who's reading that? Who's reading a novelization of an alien or a predator movie? Watchmen. Remember now that was the seminal graphic novel, award-winning graphic novel or comic book run from the eighties by Alan Moore and David Gibbons became a movie by Zack Snyder. There was actually a novelization of that, similar to this Dune thing. A Watchmen novel based on the movie, which is based on a graphic novel. And it doesn't stop there. I've seen comic book adaptions of TV shows. There's going to be a comic book adaption of the Obi-Wan TV show on Disney from Disney Plus and Mandalorian. I think they're up to season two. It might be season three. Why? I guess Marvel Comics, because they're owned by Disney and that's the comics that are putting it out, think that, believe that they're going to sell enough for it to be worth it, but people have seen, you're not bringing anything new to the comic adaption. It's useless. God bless the, the writer and the artists that are getting paid for this, but it seems like wasted, unnecessary drivel. But there is a market for it. That's wild to me. So now let's move to morons. Because there are a lot of them out there. And I didn't find these actually on Twitter. I found these elsewhere because I could find a lot of Twitters on morons, Twitter, morons on Twitter, but they're going to be 49er morons for your listening pleasure in the future. But I read that there's a <laughs> vampire facials. Now, let's just get this out of the way. This does not refer to getting bent over and pumped mercifully, unmercifully in your baby oven or your rectum by Count Chocula before he releases his vampire seed on your face. That's not what this is. Sounds good though, right? No. This refers to multiple patients who have gotten HIV from VIP spa in New Mexico due to what is considered a vampire facial, which is taking blood out of the patient's skin and uh, separating the plasma and the platelets and re-injecting it into their face because this procedure is believed to promote cell turnover and lead to an increase in collagen and elastin, making the skin look smoother, tighter, and fuller. 
Okay, great. This is also known as a plasma-rich protein facial. Sounds much, I mean, much better than vampire facial. We should change the word facial to something else because of what I just mentioned. But the other definition of facial. Now, the VIP spa was shut down in September of 2018, and the owner was sentenced to three and a half years of prison in June 2022. So a couple things here. I'm a little bit hypocritical when I say people need to age gracefully. I'm in my 40s. I dye my hair. I've been dyeing my hair for probably the last three to four years. And it, it, it coincided with two things. One, we were going to Disney. And I'm like, oh, let me, let me at least have darker pictures for Disney. Or, or it's not about looking younger. I don't care about that. Actually, I, do. I only care about that when it comes to if I'm looking for another job. There is ageism out there, folks. So I want to look maybe a little bit younger than I am. And I have that situated on my resume um, as well about, you know, looking or being younger than I am. Um, so I've been dying my hair. Plus my, my younger son started drawing pictures of the family and he drew me with purely white hair. I looked like a white Walker from game of Thrones. So when I saw that and knew that Disney was coming up, I'm like, ah, eh, let me start dying my hair. But I'm about minimal effort. I use just for men, shampoo and dye together. And I do it two to three times a week. I'm not going to a hair salon, spending 50, 70 bucks on people dyeing my hair. And I know a lot of guys do it this way. I'm doing it in the shower and it looks better. It looks good enough for me. So I don't want to be the hypocrite saying, what about aging gracefully? Cause you see a lot of celebrities out there. I mean, hell Jennifer Love Hewitt has had so much facial work done. She doesn't look bad but she doesn't look recognizable. If I showed you her picture, and she's in her early 40s as well, mid early to mid 40s, you would not know that's Jennifer Love Hewitt. Everybody looks different at 44 than they did at 24. I get it. But you should still recognize that person. So people in Mexico, just a couple things. One, maybe you shouldn't need the vampire facials. Maybe actually getting an actual facial from an actual vampire would actually be safer for you. But if you don't want to have uh, dark spots, wrinkles, sunspots, guess what? Wear sunscreen. You live in friggin' New Mexico. People that live in North Dakota should be wearing sunscreen almost daily. And guess what? Sunscreens nowadays have moisturizers in them. So that's going to help your skin as well. I don't know about these radical ways about looking younger or getting HIV or potentially hepatitis C morons. Now, moron story number two, the TikTok boat jumping challenge. This consists of people, um, morons jumping off of high speed boats because other morons are doing it on TikTok. And it was responsible for four deaths in Alabama. Cops say that victims broke their neck instantly when hitting the water. Now, are we surprised that this is a Southern state Alabama. Are we surprised that these morons live in a deep Southern state like Alabama? Like, I feel like this wouldn't happen in New Hampshire or Maine or Oregon or Washington or Idaho. It just feels like 
you know, someone with Yosemite Sam mud flaps on their house or truck would be doing something like this. Now, folks, these aren't challenges. These are moronic trends that attention-craving whores, both male and female, do to share on their social media, to show that they're part of a trend on social media. Remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? In 2014, I can't believe it's, it's been nine years. This was for a wonderful cause. It raised over $115 million worldwide for ALS awareness and research. But how many people do you know did that? How many people jumped onto that fad, onto that trend, just to put on social media and just to have their, oh, that water and ice is cold reaction, like it wasn't going to be friggin' cold. And you know the vast majority of these people didn't contribute any money to ALS research. They just wanted to be part of the fad and the trend because you're an attention-craving whore, male or female. And last but not least, moron number three, and yes, it goes back to anti-vaxxer. Now listen, if anybody here is an anti-vaxxer that's listening, more, more power to you. Like, it's your body, your choice, you know, no one's putting a gun to your head saying you should be vaccinated for COVID or uh, influenza or anything like that. But I do consider these people that think they know more than scientists to be among the most dangerous people because people are morons and stupidity can spread like a virus. The stupid virus is spread quickly through social media. And this one, unfortunately, had a death associated with it. A four-year-old boy died in Colorado from the flu because his mom reached out to Facebook's biggest anti-vax group, and that group told her not to give the Tamiflu prescribed by the doctor. Instead, she gave her child oils and elderberries and put potatoes in his socks. Now, right off the bat, I'm sure the conspiracy theorists, the anti-vaxxers or whatever are going to say, you didn't use the right kind of oils. Were the, were the elderberries expired? Did you use russet potatoes? Or did you use red potatoes or Idaho potatoes or fingerlings? Were they organic? If the potatoes weren't organic, it wasn't going to work. This is a tragedy, folks. A tragedy based on stupidity and lunacy. If you don't want to be vaccinated, that's your call. And I guess if you don't want to be vaccinated, that's going to trickle down to your children. But there are mountains of evidence as to how well vaccines work. Do they work 100%? No. But that never, ever was the case of a vaccine. Hell, anti some antibiotics don't work 100%, which is why sometimes you need something stronger or another course of antibiotics. Think of vaccines like a seatbelt. A seatbelt is not guaranteed to save your life, but it drastically reduces the chance of fatality and bodily harm. That is a vaccine, folks. A vaccine lessens the chance of you contracting the virus, one, whatever the virus may be, and two, if you do contract it, you are going, you probably, because nothing's guaranteed, will get a much less serious version of COVID, influenza, etc. Remember, polio 
has basically been eradicated from the planet because of vaccines. And people are scared of vaccines and autism and side effects and this and that. One, the autism thing was from one person who was discredited and thrown out of the medical profession because of a super duper small trial that he ran that said that there was probability of autism uh, with certain vaccines. Discredited, disbarred, not to be taken seriously. But once people read something or hear something, they can't unhear it. It's like seeing the little mark on your wall that you never noticed before, but now your eye is always going to go to it. But that's small, this is small-minded people. People that don't want to believe in science, that the response is conspiracy theory. You can never win with a flat earther or an anti-vaxxer because the response is always going to be, they have their own research, which is basically someone's YouTube channel in their basement or websites on the internet that any one of us could have put up based on nothing intelligent whatsoever. And it's a conspiracy. It's a cover-up. And you can't, there's, there's no rebuttal to either one of those, especially the cover-up. So they're going to think whatever they want. Are there side effects with vaccines? Of course there are. Just like there are with any medicine, like Advil, like Tylenol, like Benadryl, which is super harmless. But there's also side effects with food, like broccoli and cauliflower and beans will make your fart your brains out. Asparagus will make your urine smell terrible. Side effects, side effects of something, folks. It's there. I have read more studies about vaccines because I work in healthcare marketing, pharmaceutical advertising. I have read more papers about vaccines and vaccination in a day than all of these people, or the or I'll just say the vast majority of you that are not healthcare workers, clinicians, scientists, etc., more than you have in your life. Vaccines pose some risk, but it is not the risk that these anti-vaxxers want to think. And yes, are there stories of people that have been vaccinated for COVID and got COVID pretty significantly? Yes. As I mentioned, it's not going to guarantee anything. It just, it's a probability thing. It's trying to help your immune system, trying to help your body. And unfortunately, we have a dead four-year-old because oils, elderberry, and potatoes in socks were deemed by a Facebook group of morons to be better than actual medicine, actual science. Scary stuff. Morons. But again, this might be an, uh, another weekly edition because there are so many morons out there. I don't even have to search for this stuff. They just, they appear because people are morons. Now, a non-moronic thing, a very important thing. Let's end on a serious note. Last week, the Supreme Court voted in favor of a graphic designer who refused to create a a wedding website for a gay couple. And here is the misleadingly dangerous headline that I saw attached to this. In a 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court has officially ruled that businesses have the right to discriminate against LGBTQ plus Americans untrue. Whatever shred of truth that this author thought the headline was linked to based on the ruling is wrong. Lori Smith 
a website designer in Littleton, Colorado, sued her state for refusing to create a site for a same-sex marriage. Now, if you'll remember, there are similar types of cases happened in 2013 in Oregon, in 2018 in Colorado, when these were bakeries that were refusing to create um, certain cakes or cupcakes or whatnot um, for gay individuals or for same-sex marriages. And to the point where the 2013 ruling in Oregon, where the owner of the ba- of the bakery was heavily fined, that has been re-looked at. The fine was reduced. And now based on this ruling about the website, it's going to get re-looked at again, and the fine may uh, be eliminated altogether. Now, getting back to Lori Smith and her website design company, from her site, here's what she states and has stated previously to this gay couple coming in asking for the website. Quote, because of my faith, however, I'm selective about the messages that I create or promote. While I will serve anyone, I am always careful to avoid communicating ideas or messages or promoting events, products, services, or organizations that are inconsistent with my religious beliefs. End quote. Smith said that she does have gay clients who've requested websites with websites with messages that don't contradict her beliefs. So she has worked and contracted work for gay individuals or couples before. But what she did was she challenged the state's public accommodations law, claiming that by requiring her to serve everyone equally, the state was unconstitutionally enlisting her in creating, and this is the key word here, a message she opposes. And like I mentioned at the top, the Supreme Court recently ruled six to three in favor of Smith, marking a significant exemption to public accommodation laws that in most states bar discrimination based on sexual orientation. If you stop there and don't read how this was interpreted by justices, by other legal, by other lawyers or legal scholars, people are going to come away with discrimination against gay people. And that's not the case. And I highlighted the word creating, and that is the key differentiator here. And here is a quote. The decision was limited because much of what might have been contested about the facts of the case was stipulated, namely that Smith intends to work with couples to produce a customized story for their websites using her words and her original artwork. Given those facts, Smith qualifies for constitutional protection. And an additional quote from a uh, a separate uh, lawyer or, or law scholar The core of this is you can't be compelled to use your creative talents in service of speech that you fundamentally disagree with. That's a pretty clear category. Now, this is different than refusing to serve a beer or food or other rote Things, things that are everyday essential items. We are not talking about segregation back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where, especially down south, but it happened up here as well, up north, where, you know, people of color were blatantly discriminated against solely based on the color of their skin. And that was, quote unquote, okay until the 60s where that was changed. This is not 
discriminating based solely because someone is gay or lesbian or trans. This has to do with someone's religious beliefs and asking them to, here's the key word again, create something. Their words, their artwork, their images, their design to promote a message that's inconsistent with their beliefs. I know a lot of people have an issue with this. I don't. I don't. If you are asking, if you, and, and remember too, here's the big thing. This person, Lori Smith, turned down money. Obviously, she wasn't working for free. And if she wasn't going to get, wasn't going to do it for money, she certainly wasn't going to do it, you know, for, to barter for food or, or for free. She turned down money because of her religious beliefs. I know, listen, I, I understand people's point of view on the other side of this. I'm on a different side. It's America. It's okay that we can have differences of opinion without a bunch of people, liberals or otherwise, trying to condemn folks that feel a certain way about things. If you are asking me or paying me to use my, and I'm not an artist, but I am a writer, use my creative and artistic abilities to create something that I don't believe in. I'm not talking about, I don't believe in like, I don't believe in Santa Claus, but things that are inconsistent with my, in this case, strictly religious beliefs, go to another website designer, go to another bakery. Not everything has to be this huge deal. And we're jumping immediately to discriminating based on sex. That's not the case folks chill out. And the headline in a six to three vote, the Supreme court has officially ruled that businesses have the right to discriminate against LGBTQ Americans. No, that's why people don't read beyond the headline. That's why articles, and I'm sure you guys have seen it at the beginning of the article, they have three bullets summarizing what the article is about because people won't put the time in to read. And for this, I actually had to do research and cross-reference with multiple articles. I actually had to go to the Supreme Court website and read more about this case and a little bit more about the Oregon case and the 2018 case in Colorado. I'm not going to take one website's view you know, as gospel because who knows what their agenda is. But I am, it's logical to me that you cannot force someone, even if you're being paid, even if they're being paid to create something in their voice and their, with their words, with their images that they are creating and, and not things aren't going to be created from scratch. Sometimes you can leverage, you know, royalty free imagery, but create and build upon that. I'm in advertising. I work with art directors. I know how that works. And so, and then, you know, you could do royalty free or even pay a Getty images, a Shutterstock to use those images, but manipulate them in such a way, whereas they, and I know this is a gray area, become your own, but you still have to pay a royalty fee for it. This is going to be a gray area for a lot of people moving forward, because who is going to claim the religious card? Who's going to play the religion card when they don't want to do something for people of a certain race or gender or creed or religious orientation. I think this is going to get slippery. Now I'm sure they had to check Lori Smith's website and I don't know what the timestamp on this is, 
about her religious beliefs being in her like about me section or, or whatever, where she was detailing because of my faith. However, I'm selective about the messages I create, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people are going to play this card. You know, people that have prejudices that have racial, religious, or sexual orientation biases are going to play this card. And it's going to be, I think people have to be very smart and judicious if this is going to go to trial that they can prove that they're not providing these services because of that. Very, very slippery slope here. But I just wanted to, and I know this this podcast isn't reaching thousands of people. It's not going to make a difference. But for the folks that are listening, I just wanted to provide you. And you may not have even known that this was going on. I, I came across it. I thought it was interesting. Anything, you know, obviously race, religion, sexual orientation is a hot button topic in this country. But I read the headline and I thought, huh, that that's weird. That can't be right. Or, or I wonder if that's right or not. And no, it's a clickbait headline. And that is not the case in how the Supreme Court ruled. And that concludes our podcast for this week. I want to thank you always for listening this week, in previous weeks, and if you decide to listen in future weeks as well. Uh, I want to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and safe next couple days, weekend, and we will talk more early next week. Take care.